My name's Sarah Levine. I'm, a, I'm an English teacher at a, a Southwest Side High School here in Chicago, and I run a youth radio program called Cure Youth Radio. Um, there are members of at least seven youth radio uh, organizations here in the room, along with lots of other great people. Um, we're going to be talking, uh, listening to a bunch of different stories today, talking to their producers, and talking about both, I hope, uh, content and, and style, content and technique. And to begin that, that kind of conversation, I wanted to play for you just a few clips, different stories, three different stories um, that I've been trolling around the internet for. All three of them have to do with cutting or self-mutilation, depending on who you are and how you call it. And I, I'm playing these stories first. They're very, very short clips, just to give you a sense of the different ways that youth producers are approaching the same topic. Um, this first little clip you're going to hear is uh, produced by a young woman named Krista from North Country Public Radio in upstate New York. She's not here, um, so, you know, I don't know why I'm giving you that information. I guess so we can talk about it and you'll feel comfortable talking about it. I love that song. I'm really sure up this time. I hate fighting with everybody. I don't think I want to go as far as cutting, but it's pretty damn close. But I don't want to. I'm restraining myself. I'm very proud of myself. I have got a hundred average. Obviously, I'm doing very well in school. Um, I've got a lot of friends. I just want everybody to know that if you cut, it's not worth it. It's really not. It just makes you more depressed. It makes you want to cut some more. Put everything in behind. I had to learn the hard way. I'm sure you guys have to learn the hard way too, whoever cuts out there. It's not worth it. If I can quit, which it was very hard for me to stop, you can quit. Okay, that's just, just one. Really intimate, really rough, um, extremely personal and also attempting to, to reach out. She's got this sense there's this audience out there. And uh, now we're gonna hear another one um, uh, by uh, another uh, girl who's not here today. Um, her name's April and she's from Chicago. It was an accident. I was washing the dishes and the glass broke in the sink. When I was getting it out, I cut my index finger. At first I didn't notice, then I saw the blood and all the anger and tension that I was feeling was replaced by a strange feeling of joy. I saved a piece of glass. She stopped talking to me. She said if I was a good friend, I would pretend to be happy so I wouldn't make her depressed. I've been pretending for five years. My mother has smoked since she was 16. She says it helps when she feels stress. 
I've asked her to quit so many times, but she won't because that's her release. That's what gets her through day after day. I cut every day now. When I see the blood, it's like an instant high. I'm euphoric. All the sh bothering me just disappears. Sure, it comes back, but when you're in pain constantly, those five minutes of freedom are like heaven. My mother thinks I'm going through a phase. It takes too much energy to fake smiles and happiness. My father was screaming again. I never do anything right. I can't concentrate anymore. I got my first F. Cutting works. Telling me to give it up is like telling someone whose leg was just cut off they can no longer take Vicodin. Looking at my scars, I feel proud. They make me smile. They remind me that I did what I had to do to survive. They hospitalized me. No sane person intentionally hurts themselves. No sane person wants to die. I've met a couple girls here who are just like me. No one judges us here. I wish I could stay. We don't do it to get attention. You don't want that kind of attention. We don't do it to kill ourselves. We do it to stay alive. I have a bunch of alcoholics in my family. I have a bunch of smokers in my family. Most of us use these habits to relieve stress. But in society's eyes, mine's the only crazy habit. What's wrong with that picture? I told my mother I'd quit cutting when she quit smoking. She's still smoking, and I'm still alive. Okay, so that's the second piece. Um, and we're gonna bring in the third piece about cutting, which uh, Amanda Wells from KRCB produced uh, from Voice of Youth. But before that happens, I just I want to talk a little bit or ask you a little bit. And Amanda, I hope that you'll speak to this um, about tone and the dangers of youth producers dealing with you know issues. Um, this piece is on PRX. It's called "I'll Quit Cutting When You Quit Smoking." That's the one you just heard. And the reviews that it received were, were um, supportive in that they hoped that this girl was going to get herself some help. But they were uh, negative in that they said it was angsty and uh, that she's really, she's just screwed up. She's got a screwed up perspective on, on what cutting is and that it's the dangerous message that she's sending. Um, and also that it's whiny. You know, that she's just not got a kind of enough perspective to, to speak um, without feeling sorry for herself. So I think one of the questions I'm interested in, in hearing everybody talk about today is how to you know, speak exactly what you're feeling but avoid that, especially coming from the adult audience, that sense that you're feeling sorry for yourself or you're whining. And I wonder maybe, and we'll hear your piece in about two seconds, um, if one of the issues that, that makes that a, a danger is, is first person as opposed to second or third person. Um, so I'm going to uh, say that and then we're going to 
hear your piece, which plays around with point of view a lot. I remember him because he had... I mean, you don't have to cut, but when you cut, you just know that you cut and that nobody else has made you cut. It's your own personal decision. It's your own reason why for cutting. First, a game. A is for angel, B is for blue, C is for candy, D is for devil. Can you keep going? Because the longer you take, the redder the rash, then the deeper the slash. It's this game you play in school, on the schoolyard, in middle school, like Mercy or Bloody Knuckles. I first heard of it in seventh grade, the worst year of my life. My friends all changed, all started to dye their hair. It was now cool to shop at thrift stores, wearing billions of bracelets from Hot Topic. If one person did something, everyone was gonna do it. In middle school, that was your job, to follow the trends. You were just in waiting, following trends, waiting to go to high school where things would matter. So one day, this guy came up to me in my history class, some annoying guy who had always bugged me. I remember him because he had weird teeth, but maybe I'm just critical of people. He had a scar on his hand he was showing off, although it was stupid because he wasn't cool. Where'd you get that, I asked. And he was like, stick out your hand. I said, no. Come on, it'll be fun. That's okay, I said. But then the guy next to me volunteered. Without explanation, that annoying guy took the other guy's hand and started scratching it. Think of something starting with A, he said as he scratched. We have to get to Z. I'm going to keep scratching until you do. Then the teacher started class breaking it up. But after that, I started to see more and more of the red welts, the crusted blood of cuts, and the almost healed over scars on different kids' hands. I never did it. I remember once I'd rubbed my hand too hard trying to get off some Sharpie, and someone came up and said, oh, you're playing that game? It almost looked like she didn't believe me when I said I hadn't. Finally, the principal made an announcement over his loudspeaker. There is a game that's been going around. You know which game I'm talking about. This is not a safe game, it needs to stop. Something like that. And then he concluded with his regular slogan. Make it a great day or not, the choice is yours. The trend ended, replaced by new trends, wearing thongs, drinking, smoking pot, having sex. But then one girl got pregnant, and then that trend kind of faltered. But here's a trend I bet you thought would never make it to the top 10. Where did you first hear about it? About cutting? Yeah. Um, I was taught it at school, actually. Um, people were in the bathroom cutting in my freshman year. And um, I asked them about it. I'm like, why do you do it? And um, they said, it's none of my business. And I should back off. Cutting, or as counselors and parents call it, self-mutilation. A trend. So much so that it's on that list. You know, that list of questions that's always in the back of your mind that you want to know about people. Like, do you drink? Do you do drugs? Are you a virgin? Do you cut? 
I heard again and again about the compulsion, the craving for it once it got to be a habit. How did you feel emotionally before or after you cut? Um, most of the time I'd cut when I was really mad. Other times it would just be I needed to feel something or anything. And afterward you just feel really relieved. What kind of sense of relief? The kind of relief that you get when you know that there's absolutely nothing anyone can do to reach you anymore. When no one can reach you because something else seems to be standing where you used to. Once you're there, the self becomes splintered and then you twist. You want to cut, you dream of cutting, you plan your whole day around the ritual. All your decisions become based on it. What happened to the thoughts you used to have? It's my life, it's my life, they say. Let me die, let me die, she begged. But who is the being doing the begging? Wasn't it right for her mother to recoil at the sight of scars running up the arms of the body she'd given birth to? Wasn't she right to believe that her daughter, her real daughter, did not want to die? That she was lost, like someone possessed by a spirit? Wasn't it right for her to save her, to push her hand down her throat, make her vomit? Rush her to a hospital where she drank coal and again spewed, so much like an exorcism. When you suddenly see the devil in your own reflection, when you start playing God, the only thing that can save you is someone who can say, no, I know you, you're not yourself. However much you beg, I won't let you die. And that's uh, an excerpt of Amanda Wells' entire piece, which you can hear on PRX or through KRCB, or no? Yeah, it's yeah. on KRCB, too. So do you want to, can you talk a little bit um, about why you chose the you and the she, the, that kind of way of storytelling? Um, instead of first person or anything yeah, else? Yeah, instead of more interviews about, I really want to cut, this is how I feel. You went to this, you know, imagine you doing this, you doing that, and then this, this kind of mini story about she and, and she and her mom. Mm -hmm. Well, the idea I kind of had for it, I worked on this story for an incredibly long time. It took about seven months of just kind of going through the process of like, well, how do you even, how do you even approach a subject like this? How do you even talk about something that, you know, like um, a statistic like one in 10 teens like have done, but yet it's so hidden at the same time. While it's a trend during teens, parents are kind of like, whoa, like, that's not good. And if you listen to someone, like, the other two stories that were kind of like, oh, yeah, like, I want to do this, you're just like, you kind of block off. And so what I want to do is kind of take a perspective instead of like, oh, like, why do I want to sit here cutting? It, and kind of turn it around and be like, well, why wouldn't I? Like, why wouldn't that be something that I would turn to when it's around me, when people are doing it at school, things like that? So what I want to do is involve the reader and, or the, the listener and say, well, imagine yourself doing it. Like, what if, you, if this was you and put yourself in that situation of, I don't know what to do, I need to, I need to feel better, I need some way of relief, and kind of involve a sense of like, well, you know, this is your child, you know? And kind of take the parent perspective of what would happen if she saw them. 
So that was kind of the basis I had for that. Um, any questions if I said something you didn't understand? Anyone? Questions or comments about this piece? I have a, oh, go ahead. I, just, I was gonna say one thing I think you did really well, um, and I would say kind of in contrast to the other two pieces is I think you really do help us see the perspective of the cutter. At the same time, you, and I think coming from a youth voice, this is really powerful, you do step back and kind of also end it in a way that, that um, kind of helps you potentially see a way out or see why somebody might need help, you know, which I think is really great. I'm curious about how you, you know, you talk about the scratching game and stuff, how you picked, how many sort of stories or scenes you followed and how you picked what would fit in and what didn't. Well, that was kind of the first thing I thought of because um, my editor was kind of like, well, you know, what's the, what's the first time that you ever, like, heard of this or anything like that? And I was like, well, there's something kind of close to it in middle school when they, you know, they would scratch their hands and just sit there. And, I, and it was so weird because then it kind of transformed into this other sort of trend where you wanted people to notice you. Is that, are you familiar with that, you guys? Is anyone... It was really weird in my school, but I've, I've heard about it elsewhere, too. So I also ended the, uh, I'm kind of disappointed that you didn't get to hear a thing. I would recommend hearing it all because also in one part, I, I depict a certain scene saying, um, like, hold out your arm and imagine, like, taking a razor and actually doing this to yourself and kind of asking the listener, could you? Could you at all, like, even go like past your instincts of like protecting yourself and kind of transform that whole idea to hurt yourself is just an like an incredible thing to think about anyways because you're going against so much of your basic instinct so I wanted to bring that into it too and also I end with a, a short story at the end also I don't know if you ever did this but in elementary school like you used to draw like on your arms or whatever and there's this one where you'd like walk like pretend like there's a person walking in and like take all like the the heavy stuff out and put light stuff out and then you'd feel like one arm was lighter I don't know if any of you remember that but um but I kind of brought that in to demonstrate um kind of what cutting does and it makes you feel lighter in a sense but um in a different way so yes what audience did you have in mind who did you picture your listener to be um Everybody. I, I think that it's really necessary that everyone hears this. So I didn't, I didn't want to take just a step of, like, if I want my audience to be parents, I didn't want just parents listening to it, and which is, I think, kind of the idea that um, the first two other stories had. We're just, like, we're just getting this image of a cutter. I think it's necessary when you take issues like this to make it bigger. You, you can't just have one perspective in this because in order to reach everybody, you kind of need to take everything that people learn. That's why I brought in the stories about middle school and um, the parents. The, yeah, and the parents and the idea of like, well, how would parents feel listening to this? And that um, also could reach like psychiatrists and people being like, oh, like that's an interesting idea. And also uh, directly addressing the reader in the part that you didn't hear, being like, imagine yourself doing this. Like, pull up your sleeve right now and imagine what it would be like to do this. So that's the idea that I had. Uh, two more and then we'll, we'll move on. Go ahead. Sure. Um, just as having been uh, an adult that worked with the man on the piece, I just think an interesting aspect of it is that we were talking about 
having whether you're inside or outside of the problem and that it's I mean with any addiction or anything whether you're talking about being in a gang or cutting or anything there's the idea is the narrator like inside the problem where like I think the second story we heard she's totally inside it and she can only see like from inside it and she's radically divorced in her perspective from anyone that's outside of it but then if you narrate from outside of it like this is a crazy phenomenon that's going on then it's totally not truthful to anything about the experience. And if we're trying to document the experience of something, you know, that to narrate it from outside would be very incorrect. So I think it's, it was kind of an attempt, I think, Amanda, we talked about this a lot, to try to straddle that kind of divide and sort of talk about what it feels like to be inside where it's natural and of course and outside. So it's a struggle, I think, that we work on all the time. Yeah, but she did a good job bridging that gap. There's one more in the back. You said you worked on a piece for seven months, and it's, it's a heavy topic. I'm wondering how you emotionally sustain yourself or stay focused and stay committed to the story. Um, I thought it was important enough. I mean, uh, as you heard, the interviews, a lot of them were my friends. And I went around school. That was the first thing I did, actually is um, decide, you know what, I, I think I want to do a story on this. And I was like, well, how do you even, how do you even start this? Like, where do you begin? So I was like, I need to talk to people. I need to talk to people, like, other than myself and just go around and figure out, like, where people have heard this, what it is. So once I had that tape, like, I, I also didn't work on it, like, continuously. There are a lot of times where, like, I would just, like, stop for a couple weeks or, like, a month and then come back to it and, like, look at the drafts that I'd written because I wrote a lot of drafts and just be like, okay, well, you know, what's wrong with it? Like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's not addressing any of the issues I wanted to. And so um, finally it was just a deadline that kind of made me push it to the end, you know, and make a final draft and voice it. So that's kind of how I worked on it. Great. Great. Um, I want to I wanna push on. Sorry, I know you've got questions. You can ask if you have any questions afterwards, too. I'll be around. Great. Um, to a, a, a story, a similar kind of story in that there's interviewing happening. There's, I almost find this one more disturbing than the cutting story, frankly. Um, and that seems impossible. Um, this is a story called Dressy Girls. Um, and it's by Lena Eckert-Erdheim, who's sitting right there, um, from Youth Noise Network. What are you wearing? Did you dig through your dirty laundry for a shirt this morning? Pick out your clothes the night before? Or change three times before leaving the house? More importantly, why are you wearing it? What made you buy that skirt to begin with? And what, if anything, do you hope to say about yourself with those jeans? These girls think about their clothes and bodies in a very different way than I do, and I want to know why. Um, I think when girls wear, pick their jeans, yeah, to make their butt look good, it gives them an amount of confidence, and so, and yes, and guys like it. Not only do you want to impress the guys, but you want to impress the girls too, like you want other girls to think that they're inferior to you and make them jealous so that they'll be your friend. Someone actually said that, yes, on tape. <laughs> Not only do you want to impress the guys, but you want to impress the girls too. Like you want other girls to think that they're inferior to you and make them jealous so that they'll be your friend. Okay, well, when you're single, you want to look good so you can get a guy. But when you have a guy, you want to look good to impress other people so your guy is proud that he has you. <laughs> you try to impress the guys around you because you want them looking at you. You want them liking you and everything. 
And if they don't, then you don't feel good about yourself. Like, what do you think makes a guy look at you? Skin, 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 lots of skin. Because they look at you and they're like, ooh. This is Holly. She's wearing the pink skirt and striped shirt. Everybody said I've matched. Yeah. And that I look cute. What makes something cute? Right. Um, if it is fitted, fitted right. Seventeen magazine says accentuate waist. A fit and flare shape shows off your tiny middle. And if it shows your figure. <laughs> yeah, if you got it, show it off. Flaunt legs. An uneven hem camouflages thighs but shows off calves. I'm not trying to impress anybody here either. So when I wear things that are fitted and maybe a little revealing, it's for myself, and I think I look good in it. Except I know, I know I look good in it. I know. Melina's cute clothes and efforts to show off her figure have gotten her in trouble. She's known for pushing and breaking the dress code at school. In other words, crossing the line between cute and what this group refers to as skanky. I think to dress like a skank... Like Melina. Melina. No, no. I think to dress like a skank is where you're wearing like a really, really, really short, short skirt and um, showing, like having your thong hanging out and like having your like breasts show. Enhance bust, a pleated bodice adds fullness to your chest area. And wearing like really high heels like that tall with a skirt and stuff. Sounds familiar. <laughs> I've never done that before. No, I haven't. I'm serious. That was in sixth grade. That was in sixth grade. I dress like a skank. The newest glasses, bikinis, and short shorts go for a mini skirt this season. Because I, I was ugly. I was really ugly in sixth and seventh grade. Yeah, you were. And <laughs> it boosted up my confidence. You thought other people would like you more because of the way you dress? No, definitely not like me more, but look at me more. And of course, hide your tummy. An empire waist skims over your curves and draws the eyes upward. I have on a jacket, and it's green and long sleeve, of course. And then I have capris on that are pink, and then I have white shoes that are guest shoes. I tracked down Melina and Holly before school started in the morning and talked to them individually. This is Melina. What you wear, like if you have a certain trait about your body that you like, that you want to show off maybe, but not too much, like it might help you like if you're walking down the hallway and maybe like a guy's looking at you, might bring up your self-esteem because, you know, somebody's looking at you and you want them to look at you and they're admiring the part of your body that you like also. Do you think that, um, that a lot of girls feel that way? Yes, and if they say they don't, like they do. Do we all want to be seen? There have definitely been times in my life when I didn't want to be seen at all. I found more security in unrevealing clothes and keeping my body to myself. I wasn't necessarily scared, and I didn't have low self-esteem, but I didn't want, still don't want, the kind of attention Melina dresses for. I like when people look at me, but I don't want you to look at me in a bad way because of what I wear, because that's me, and like, how do you, how are you gonna tell me what to wear and what I, and with what I wear, like, oh, she's like a slut because she's wearing a short skirt. Like, that's not true. It's a short skirt. It doesn't mean I go around, you know, doing stuff to people. I'm wearing a t-shirt with ribbons in my hair and jeans and tennis shoes. 
Here's Holly again. I don't know, like every girl wants to be known as hot or whatever. So of course I do want to be known as hot, quote unquote. But I don't know, I'm not really dressing to impress guys. So did you? Yeah. <laughs> Last year and stuff when I was younger I wore short skirts and skanky tops and so like that just to impress the guys. I don't really do that now, so. I think like a lot of us girls, we call each other like sluts when we wear little skirts because it's just joking, but like people have that idea when you wear something skanky that you're easy and you can be gotten. So I really do think the way you present yourself, if you're gonna wear a short skirt, then you should be ready to be called a slut. I know my choice of clothes says something about me. Holly, Melina, and crew aren't the only ones who are trying to make some sort of statement with their jeans. Most of us do deal with some sort of panicky insecurity about our appearance and how others will see us. In my perfect world, though, women would just be able to wear what they wanted. Getting attention would mean something besides cleavage, but no one would have to be prepared for name-calling or insults. And Seventeen Magazine? Well... I won't even go there. This is Lena Eckert-Erdheim. I had never interacted with that particular group of girls before. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but did, did you know exactly who you wanted to talk to before I, you began? I did. Well, okay, so there's someone else in my youth program, Youth Minus Network, that hangs out with them. And uh, I was like, Gabby, set me up with some... Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, one day at lunch, I went into the cafeteria and... Uh, it was, it was a little awkward because I never met them before and I was asking them about what they were wearing and was wearing the most like dirty, grungy sweatshirt and jeans ever. <laughs> and um, so I, st I started out, I think, um, by asking each of them what they were wearing. And um, that's actually how the piece starts, um, is this sound collage of them describing what they're wearing in great detail with brand names and colors and high-heeled flip-flops and <laughs> um, and then actually I think the the like someone called someone a slut or a skank or something and then I just tried to ask them what that meant um, and that that came about really without me intending for it to happen. Like when they started calling each other names and then the guys sitting at the table got involved in it too. And um, So actually the first time I did interviews, I didn't really have to ask them anything. They just kind of wanted to talk and hold the mic or, <laughs> you know, like I, I think they were just happy I was recording them and they didn't really think about what they were saying. <laughs> um, or didn't believe me when I told them it would be on the radio because... <laughs> the set, who had the set? Go ahead, Neela. I was wondering, what's the intention of the Um, 
I'm not sure if they've heard it. I told them all when it was airing. Um, does it worry me? Yeah. That they'll hear it? No, what they would. I'm, I'm just wondering if they, were most of those interviews done like, in social situations where they could kind of play off of each other? Um, the, the beginning ones were, and then the ones with Holly and Melina were done individually um, by themselves. Um, I, it was something I had a hard time with when I was editing because I felt like in a lot of ways, my piece was going to be judging them, and that, you know, I think it does. Um, and it was really hard for me to, I don't know, because I knew it was going to make people laugh, and I didn't want them to feel like people were laughing at them, but at the same time, like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. Um, I don't know that they've heard it, though, and I don't think it really bothers me what they would think about it, because they said it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and frankly, it seems like less a, a particular personal judgment than just kind of a, a kind of a horrified commentary, you know, on, on general societal norms. And let's just, I know there's a ton of questions, so let's take two more. Um, were you actually reading from Seventeen Magazine? I was. <laughs> Current or recent, or, uh, or uh, 1950s? No, that's about last, last summer, huh. I think. This is more like of a comment, not so much of a question. But um, I was just going to say, like, when you were, uh, let me just say, I thought your piece was great and I loved it. But at the part where there was Holly, we were talking to Holly, like, more towards the end, and she said, um, that, was, that was so last year or whatever, and I don't really need to do that anymore. Um, I feel that if you would have asked her, well, why? Well, what, what's the difference? What do you feel happened in yourself to make you feel like you don't have to do that anymore? Would have gave it a little bit more depth. And I, I don't know, it was weird because she, she kind of contradicted herself in that interview from the first time I talked to her where she kind of had the, the same line as everybody else that, you know, she was the one who said, yeah, when girls pick their jeans, it's to make their butt look good and to get guys to look at them. Um, but yeah, that would have been an interesting. <laughs> good. Um, you know what? These are, uh, will you be around after? I will stick around and talk to anyone. Who Great, because I just want to make sure that you hear as many great stories as possible. So, sorry about that. Um, but let's do remember that in order to make friends, ladies, you make your girlfriends jealous so that they feel inferior to you so then that they'll be your friend. <laughs> it's really hard. Okay. Right, 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 right. Oh, well, I try to make them first feel inferior, then jealous, not jealous, then inferior. It's switched when you're a grown up. When you grow up, right. Okay, uh, we're going to uh, hear a piece by, uh, by Youth Radio, um, uh, which also deals with kind of um, societal influences, but this time maybe the response is slightly different. This is uh, a commentary on Promiscuous Girl, and Aisha Walker is going to talk about it after we're done. Girls and like boys, that's how they act towards each other. There's that little game of I like you, you like me, but we're not going to tell each other. She's trying to play hard to get, but it's like a game. Looking for a girl that'll treat you right. You're looking for in the daytime with the light. Might be the type if I play my cards right. I'll find out by the end of the night. You expect me to just let you hit it, but will you still respect me if you get it? All I can do is try, give me one chance. What's the problem? I don't see the ring on your hand. 
how you doing, little lady? Yeah, like stuff like that. That's how people approach girls. When you meet a person, the way they approach you is very different nowadays. It's not necessarily, hi, how are you doing? You know, my name is. It's more, hey, you look good. Let me holler at you. There's no quality to anything anymore. Dudes is getting straight to the point. They just be like, yo, so when you gonna have sex with me? I like the song because of the beat, but I don't necessarily agree with the message. I mean, promiscuous girl, like that's not something that a guy should want. I mean, guys should care about the personality, intelligence, confidence. That whole idea of a dude being able to be easy, you don't hear that in hip hop. You don't hear that in pop. Chivalry is dead, like the whole opening doors for a girl and walking on the outside of the street, you don't see that happen much. It ain't dead for me, it ain't dead for a lot of my peers and a lot of my homeboys, so I can't really say it's dead. It's just like adults trying to grasp the idea that teenagers do have sex nowadays. It's hard for them to like think, oh God, that's what they're doing and they're putting it out there. Like we may have done that, but that was in like Johnny's car and we sure as heck didn't talk about it with the other kids. Yes, I do believe that songs like this lead to promiscuous behavior and what you hear is a big effect on how you live. Your favorite celebrities are the ones singing the song and you're going to want to live her lifestyle and you're going to change the way you act. I mean, I do feel like it really contributes to the way girls just carry themselves. I mean, unless you're already sexually active, a song will not make you go out and have sex. A lot of old soul songs had that real smooth talking dude. A lot of people born in that time was conceived to those songs, but I don't think nobody's playing promiscuous girl and getting it on. That's a little too corny. Yeah, um, that was not my piece. I didn't work on it at all. But um, so we have this core class at Youth Radio, which is the, the starting point where you're introduced to all these different opponents that Youth Radio has to offer. And so there was this poll that said that music has a big influence on your lifestyle that basically said that if you listen to sexy music, then you're, mo you're more prone to have sex. So all these kids, that, well, not kids, but um, like everyone starts working up this conversation about it. So I guess um, Patrick, he's, all, he's listening to it and he's like, wait, let's get this in the studio. So it wasn't scripted or anything. So they just went, ran into the studio and just recorded everyone's thoughts. That's how it came about. No scripted. Question? Um, is it, I'm, not, I'm not wondering if they just ask you. Um, I was going to ask about the, the strategy for, for, for the interview because there's some, I mean, obviously lots of it is dealing with kind of the, the bigger impact of the, of the song and how people are working on it. But there are also a couple moments when it's very close to exactly the lyric that you're responding to. These are like great moments. It's, it's next, like they're commenting not just on the whole song, but on 
just that year. And I, I wondered about um, if you have any insight on, uh, I mean, if it, if it just happened, it just happened. But, but uh, in terms of, of going after those, those notes, you know what I'm talking about? Well, I can't really speak on it because I wasn't a part of the production, but um, I was just, they were talking to me about the piece. I wasn't there when they created it or, or anything. I'm just speaking for it. <laughs> I wonder if that's an indication of that, the vocabulary that's in those songs or then the vocabulary used to talk about it, or if they were just listening to the song. I don't know. It's also such a popular song that everybody was sort of singing it at youth radio, so it's like people are talking about it. It's like, it, you know, people were singing the song while they were doing their interview. Yeah. You know, it's sort of kind of one of those things where it was like really popular, and so some of it was getting people to talk about why they loved it so much, because there was sort of a separation yes. from it at the same time that there was, you know, a, a love of this song and like knowing all the words. So I think that's the standard with a really popular song. Um, like, I can really understand, like, because I grew up on, like, classic soul and stuff like that. So everything back then was, like, you had to really listen to it. To hit, like, so they were asking the same question, uh -huh. but it was so much smoother than that. Yeah. And then now, like, now it's like they skip dinner and they go straight for dessert. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, but the music is so addictive. It's like you forget the words for moments until you actually sit down and you're like, oh, my gosh, did she just ask that question? <laughs> you believe she actually said that? And it's coming from a lot of the girls, more so than the guys now, on like in the music yeah. That's why I, I didn't end our session with this piece, so that you all weren't walking on like eh, 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 for the rest of the day, because it is kind of addictive. It is. Um, let's um, take a you know 60 seconds to like get your behind not unnumbed if if it is numbed, and we're gonna switch up here because we've got a couple more pieces to listen to. Um, Celia's coming up, and Marina, and, and Edward. Thank you, thank you very much, Aisha, and, and Nina, and Amanda. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is, uh, this is uh, Out Loud Radio, Celia Laluz. And, there she is. Uh, this is a, an, an, a work in progress. Yeah. Called Talking Gay. Or Sounding Gay. Sounding Gay. And uh, can I ask, maybe as we listen to it, it, it would you mind if, if your listeners have in mind maybe ideas for you about where to take it or what to edit? Or are you feeling pretty, um, pretty okay. happy with it? Okay, well, I think it's fairly evident once you start listening to this that it's kind of in a hurry. Because I started this piece, like, shortly before... Well, I started it technically after Third Coast last year because I was all inspired. And I did a... <laughs> I, I did a Vox Pop, but then, like, school happened. And then I got... And I got working on it again in March. And then college happened. And so it's like... It, it, it was kind of... The production, the schedule was very spastic. Um, so I kind of like finished it at the last moment, like last, well, not finished it, but like got a draft at the last moment last week. Okay. So yeah, it's kind of ghetto, but, um, all right. All right. In terms let's, of, the, let's yeah. stop introducing it and we'll play it. And yeah. <laughs> it into the okay. So just an excerpt. All right. All right. Most people can agree that when it comes to guessing if a guy is gay or straight, 
The sound of his voice is one of those big tip-offs as to whether he is Fab Five gay or straight as an arrow. I decided to investigate the matter by hitting the street and asking the common man what so they thought. on the radio now? What are we doing? <laughs> oh, who are we talking to? Oh, my God. What radio? Okay, so I didn't quite seek out the typical right men on the street for my investigation. I had gone to the very epicenter of the gay world, the Castro District of San Francisco, on one of the most flamboyantly festive days of the year, Halloween. I was wondering... What better group of people is there to ask about gay art and gay men themselves? I asked all of the men I encountered, no matter how drunk, the same question. Do you think you can tell if a guy is gay or not, based on the sound of his voice? To my surprise, I gathered a wide variety of answers. No, it really depends on what they say. Because my army boy, ooh, he is fine as fuck. He sounds straight as fuck, too. But you know, what he says, the way he dances, he is fucking gay as ever. He's gayer than me, okay? And I sound gayer than him, okay? If you are flamboyant, I would assume yes. But there are straight men who I'm sure talk flamboyantly. They're feminine, but even that, like, no, you can't. You just can't tell nowadays. Because we have the whole metrosexual, like, you know what I mean? It's hard. So the queerest of queens all agreed that you can tell with some people, namely those as flamboyant as themselves. They had been surprised or disappointed too many times to rely on the sound of someone's voice alone when it comes to pinpointing sexuality. But only a few people said with complete conviction that you cannot tell if someone was gay by the sound of their voice at all. And, surprise, surprise, these were my straighter specimens, caught way out of their element. Uh, well, this is, we had to go with a big superhero theme, so, you know, super cheese and... Super bling girl. For example, this pair of heteros. The man was dressed as a giant wedge of cheese. Granted, it was Halloween, but it was clear that this was not their natural habitat. Regardless, I decided to ask them, do you think you can tell if a guy is gay by the sound of their voice? No. No. Never, honey. Okay. You think I'm gay, honey? I ain't gay, honey. I'm straight. Sometimes. Almost everyone I talked to, gay or straight, was reluctant at first to say that you could tell if someone was gay by the sound of his voice. However, none of them denied that some men sound gayer than others. As we migrated away from the clubs, we managed to find a sober and very introspective subject, Blue. And, but yeah, even, even physical aspects, like uh, biological aspects, like the sound in their voice. I mean, even when you came up and said about recording me, I hear it, I, when I talk, I don't hear it in my voice, but when I hear myself recorded, yeah, I'm like, whoa, totally gay. <laughs> so have you ever like made any effort to sound less like that? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, many times when I was younger, when I would answer the phone, I'd be talking with someone and they would say, well, thank you, ma'am, or, or something like that. And it, at a time, it was, it was upsetting, and, uh, it would make me angry, it would make me sad, it would make me scared. Um, and I sometimes get it now, I think as I've gotten older and my voice has deepened, even though I can still hear that quote-unquote gayness in it, um, I don't get it as much, but I still do sometimes, and it doesn't bother me as much now, though. It's just kind of like, it's kind of funny, almost, you know. Why can't some men help but sound gay? Blue seemed to suspect that it was some kind of biological tendency. After all, he says he has sounded this way since he was a little boy. Research has actually been done on the matter. The first study to really address this question was by Rudolf Gaudio in 1994. He found that listeners could reliably identify the sexual orientation of men based on the sound of their voice alone. 
However, Gaudio failed to identify why this was the case. Also, the study was tiny, much too small to be conclusive. Enter Michael Schuler. Michael is the assistant director of the Lesbian and Gay Chorus of San Francisco. His master's thesis at Harvard was called, That's the Gayest Thing I've Ever Heard, Phonetic and Phonological Content of the Perceptions of Gay and Straight Sounding Speech in English. In his study, Michael too found that listeners could identify the sexual orientation of speakers based on the sound of their voice. However, his paper only began to speculate on what defines this gay sound of voice and how it is adapted. I decided to speak with Michael during a break in one of his rehearsals. We, as a culture, as any group of people, decide that this, this particular sound sounds gay. And I was wondering, what are the linguistic components of that? Because often people say, well, gay sounding really means effeminate. And so I was, I was looking and seeing if, if, it, if it really means effeminate, that means that female uh, voice contours and gay sounding male voice contours should be similar. And so I was looking, well, is that, is that really the case? People say, you know, gay sounding sounds swoopy. But linguistically, what does that mean? Does that, does that really mean that your pitch is changing a lot? Does that mean that just the intonation at the end of your sentences changes? Sort of like the Californian accent? Um, there are lots of possibilities there. And can you go over the Californian accent quickly for me? Is that like Valley Girl? Uh, Valley Girl's an extreme example, but typically uh, people from not, not from California make fun of us for... Uh, making all of our statements into questions or what they would, they, they would think sound like questions. So like at the end of all your sentences, you go, it's, it's certainly in the Valley Girl accent, but it's like you're asking confirmation from the person you're talking to at the end of all of your phrases. <laughs> sure. Celia, do you have any, any questions for your listeners about how this piece is working for them? Um... I don't know. I'm I'm just a little concerned because when I presented last year, I presented another piece that was like a lot funnier. And also, I'm afraid it's not juicy enough, you know, because I'm talking to like MS students, and it's too yeah. dry. You're worried it's, yeah. it's too technical or too yeah. Scholarly. Like, were you ever like trailing off? Like, for example, when Michael Schuler was speaking, was your brain shutting off? Okay. Go ahead. Well, yesterday I went to Die, Mediocrity, Die, right? Yeah. And there was a lot of talk about writing in and out of tape. And I just thought your introduction to the graduates, whoever he was, I didn't catch who he was, but the graduate student was great because you took what we all kind of find just strange about academia, which is like those long journal titles. And it was a, it was a joke. It was yeah. funny. But it wasn't a mean thing. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the copy is really good in your delivery. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really conversational. I mean, it never sounds technical. It's, I think the piece sounds great. Really. I was interested in all of the characters. And I loved how you used your tracks over some of the stuff you were capturing earlier, which would have just been you know, dissonant noise almost. But I thought that you, know, you captured that setting really well, too. Yeah. You, you you had to be there like for the vox pop like at one point they started molesting my supervisor no no I, I'm serious like like one of them took the mic anyway I won't go there but yeah oh okay it was crazy <laughs> okay well um, let's let's talk about graffiti then shall we all right good I, I think it sounds great 
I'm, I'm excited to hear the rest of it. Uh, this is um, now we're going to we're moving to a slightly different format. This is a, a talk show um, that's coming out of Salt Lake City. This is Marina, and you're working with SpyHop. Yeah. Um, we're again going to play just an excerpt um, of what is an hour-long show. It's an hour-long show. Yeah. All right. Here we go. On this one on graffiti. Hi, caller. You're on the air. Remember the first time I ever called in. I thought so great because I actually said something and someone was listening. It's coming from a place of passion, a place of concern, a place of, of wanting to make sure that things don't happen in your community that are to the detriment of the, of the people that live there. What I like about community radio is it is of and from the community. It's not driven by corporate interests from New York or somewhere else in the world, but it's made right here in Utah and it's for us. Activism is for people who want to work with other people solving problems and being creative. People can talk even when it's hard. Hello, my name is Marina, and I am part of Loud and Clear Youth Radio. We've been hosting Radioactive all this week on Utah's community radio, KRCL 90.9 FM. Today's topic is street art. Is it art or vandalism? Street art is a name that entails stencils, stickers, paste-ups, and graffiti with its subcategories like tags, pieces, and throw-ups. In the book Stencil Graffiti, which catalogs and celebrates over 400 photos of stencils from all over the world, author Tristan Manco says... Street art is both an expression of our culture and a counterculture in itself. Communication has become a modern mantra. The streets shout with billboards, fly posters, and corporate advertising all vying for our attention. They almost invite a subversive response. As high-tech communications have increased, a low-tech reaction has been a recent explosion in street art. My first guest is Jeremy, who operated the Unknown Gallery. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Would you agree with that quote, that street art is a response to an increasingly high-tech culture? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, it's a legitimate art form. It has been for uh, forever. You know, graffiti was probably one of the uh, the first original art forms. So if you're going way back to uh, cave drawings and in uh, Roman Greek times, it's uh, it's been around forever. So it's just a, a part of I think a part of a social structure and part of life. Yeah, it has been around for quite a while. But would you say it's more common, like more recently than it was, say, a decade ago? Um, I. I don't know. I think it's it's kind of evolved and re-evolved itself. It has it has still um, you still see quite a bit of it. Uh, some good, some bad, yeah. but it is uh, it is out there. And uh, I know it has had its stronger days probably in the '80s than in mid '90s. Yeah. So now it's I don't know. There's probably a new generation that's coming <laughs> up. Sort of rearing its head again. Um, now some of our listeners aren't very familiar with the Unknown Gallery. Uh, you guys, I don't know, it's known to me as kind of a big supporter of street art. And tell us about that a little. Well, the Unknown Gallery was uh, open for two years. Uh, it just recently closed its doors about a month ago. And our focus really was to help um, emerging artists, uh, both locally, nationally, I'm just going to fade that out so that we can talk with you a little bit about the experience of, you know, being in, handling all these different, the different yeah. elements that make a talk show happen. Yeah, there were a lot of different elements going on all at once. <laughs> so can, can you kind of outline those for us? Well, um, this was my, my first and only talk show experience. That's why, I mean, I was really 
really nervous and there are a lot of ums and so and I mean in the beginning when he's talking I mean they hadn't been in the studio either so when you hear him talking and it's all live and so when you hear him talking and all of a sudden it gets louder that was me going and so, yeah, and so there's a lot of that. And, I mean, it's live, so anything can happen. And it's not exactly there's some things you want to say again or I'm saying things quietly and I'm really talking fast in the beginning. And um, I don't know. I guess that's what you get with live radio. But And when um, you're telling him to be louder, is that because someone's telling you to tell him yes, to be louder? Yes, yes. Actually, in the other room, there, was, um, there are glass windows. And so in the other room, they're like... <laughs> you know, and plus there's a computer next to me um, that we're instant messaging with like AOL, instant messenger, and he was saying like we can't hear Jeremy, and so I was like okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was like I was instant messaging during the whole show. It was pretty, or he was like getting mad at me. Well, not mad at me, but he was like, you're not responding to my instant messages, and it's like I'm on the air, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So, it was pretty intense. <laughs> you, you don't sound nervous at all. You sound very composed. Wow. <laughs> How did you decide what would be the best questions to ask? Um, I wrote out my questions beforehand. I based them on, I mean, what I found interesting and what I thought maybe listeners would find interesting. Questions I actually wanted to know about street art. I've, been, I've always been interested in it. Um, I was an artist myself, still kind of am, but... I just wanted to figure out things about street art or what people thought about it. I don't know, just personally, what I wanted to know and what I thought other people might want to know as well. Um, um, sorry. Uh, when you were setting up your piece, you said that it was going to be a uh, conversation about graffiti. Mm -hmm. Then I, I noticed in your conversation, you very, you know, you labeled it street art, and I'm wondering if. You know, if you were excluding some of what you consider graffiti, or was that... Actually, um, in, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you, sorry. But um, in my show throughout, we, we it, that's just the intro, you know. Um, we talk about, I mean, I had like, I had different guests, one who's a clean, like she cleans up graffiti. Oh, wow. And I had a guest who was an artist himself. And... Actually, we had two guests that were artists themselves, one from Boston and one locally. But, um, no, we tried to include all different types. We were just talking about those types in the beginning. And street art, I mean, that was the name we put on it to, like, it's not, it's kind of confining, though. We tried to broaden it up later on. So if you listen to the whole show, you can see that we tried to talk about all sorts of different aspects, like from stencils or to, like, more basic, like, street graffiti that's been out, been around forever that's, like, throw-ups, paste-ups, pieces, that sort of thing. Why was it your last show? Um, well, it, w it was my only show. Um, well, my only show was radioactive. You weren't responding to the instant messaging, like, right? Huh? You weren't responding to the instant messaging. No, I wasn't entirety. responding to the instant messages. No, um, we, we were DJs on a night program that's just like we played music and would talk and have docs every now and then. But this was kind of our swan song sort of in our program is we got to put together this this show on radioactive which is a daily call-in show so that was kind of the end of our program was we each got a radioactive program so it was cool we only song. planned on having one cool. 
All right, thank you. We didn't yeah. give you your applause. We should. <laughs> Hey, um, we, we, I don't mean to be pushing too fast, but again, I want you to hear as much as possible because there's such a kind of a wide variety of stuff out there. Um, we're going we're gonna to rookie it up, as um, the Radio Rookies from New York were saying yesterday. We're going to hear two pieces from Radio Rookies back to back. The first one is Edward's piece um, about his illness, um, which uh, when he was 12, he, was, um, he went into the hospital with an illness called aplastic anemia. Aplastic. Aplastic, not a plastic. Aplastic. Yeah, it's, it's called aplastic anemia, and basically what it is is your bone marrow malfunctions, so therefore no red blood cells or white blood cells or platelets are being reproduced. So um, one of the cures for it is a, is a bone marrow transplant. And All right. The story speaks for itself. Okay. What's your relationship to me? Well, I love you. You're my brother. And you've done a lot of stuff to me, and I have done a lot of stuff to you. My littlest brother, Ricky, was only four when I got sick. Remember when I was sick back, like, four, three years ago? What? Tell me something about that. You would look really tired, like, if you were drunk. How did that make you feel? Really bad. I'm like, I'm like oh, my God, my brother's going to die. You thought I was going to die? Yeah. I was in shock to hear that. I figured Ricky didn't know anything about death. Anyway, both my brothers would check to see which one could be my possible donor. And then they thought it was Edwin, so they took a lot of blood out of him, a lot of blood. And then they found out it wasn't, so it was me. My littlest brother, Ricky, was a perfect match. And all I remember was that one doctor and my mom and dad, they put, and one night they put me in a room. They opened up two holes in the back, lower back part. That's my father, Eduardo. And from there, they extract like half a liter of the soda, I would say the Coke, in blood from the bones in the back. Okay, when I was sleeping, I felt like a, a machine going on my back. Like, mm, like, it was like a turbo. And then I knew that they were taking something out. I asked my mom if I was cured after my transplant. We had to wait. Even when there's a perfect match sibling, 20% of those transplants still fail. The first 100 days after transplants are the most important. These are the most dangerous days because the bone marrow can be rejected. All I really remember about the months after my transplant is doctors coming in and out and me just watching them. I felt like the world just kept moving and I was stuck in one place. My mom told me that I spent weeks without saying a word. I remember my middle brother, Edwin, bringing me a stuffed pillow that said, get well soon. Instead of saying thank you, I kicked him out because I just wanted to be alone. Everybody was telling me a lot of things that you had a blood cancer or some kind of cancer. And I felt really sad because I was only seven years old. And at the age seven, I, was, I needed my father and, and mother. So what was your reaction to hear that Ricky had my my exact bone marrow. I was like, wow, I'm not a match. I, I'm not gonna feel a little bit special more than him. I never asked Edwin what he was going through back then. I thought if I would give him the bone marrow, I would feel more special. But Ricky got the match and he's special now to everybody. Seeing everyone call Ricky a hero must have made him feel low. 
before. I didn't think he cared he wasn't a donor. It wasn't his choice. After that had been told me, I felt sorry for him. If you die, you know it's my turn. But I still pick Ricky's side when they fight, even if he's wrong. You even know what ESL stands for? Yes, I do. What's the stand for? Come on. Especially talk. stupid people like Edwin. And Ricky takes advantage of my protection and bothers Edwin. Second play. What happened? What happened, Edwin? Nah, this kid's mad at me. Just leave him alone, all right? Just leave him alone. Uh, I'm gonna tell you Nah, nah, don't nah, tell nah, him. Nah, 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 Shut nah, up. Nah. Just be quiet. I know I won't be able to repay Ricky for saving my life. When I needed him the most, he was there. Just leave it, Edwin. My father was there for me by being on top of everything that had to do with my medical situation. He even kept people out of the hospital room to protect me from catching anything. My mom, well, my mom was always by my side. She told me that reading the Bible gave her strength to believe that I was going to be okay. I told her, you seem uncomfortable with this interview. It's true I feel uncomfortable and sad because for me to remember these sad moments I went through, it's like I'm going through it right now. I remember my parents arguing when I was sick. They tried hiding it, but I knew what was going on. So I trapped my mom in the kitchen and asked her how their relationship was back then. Normal. The truth. We argued. Sometimes I needed him and he wasn't there. I asked her if they ever thought about splitting up. She stayed quiet. Yeah, he has his way of thinking and I have mine. We've always done what he wants. My word has no say. Uh, at the beginning, we were very tight, very close. We cried together. We, we had very good relations the first two months. After that, day by day, it will start deteriorating. We don't have nothing to say to each other. In other words, she was all on you, and I was all on you. So I got nothing for her, she got nothing for me. Hearing you talk about this, it makes me feel like because of me, my whole family could have been split up. And I, and I, I, I feel guilty. And uh, I think it's pretty normal that this type of situation is happening because we weren't expecting to go through all that nightmare. But I never, never we blame on you. It could happen to me, it could happen to Ricky, to Edwin, to anyone. In reality, me being sick did cause some problems, but I know my parents don't blame me for what happened. They're just happy I'm alive. Out of all the kids that I entered the hospital with at the same time, there was Juan, there was Angel, there was that little kid, Joseph. How many of them are alive today? Alive? Well... Practically, from those kids that you mentioned, no one is alive. Just you. 
If I had never gotten sick, I don't think me and my family would be as close as we are now. Before, I would just say hi and bye. Now I sit down at the dinner table and I don't take them for granted. Okay, is there anything that I forgot to ask you or that you want to tell me about or remember me? No, everything is good, everything is back to normal. Just the way I want it to be. Okay, thank you. I just I have a, a, a bunch of thoughts, but just one question. Um, did you know when you asked your father um, about all the kids that you were with in the hospital, who was were they still alive? Did you already know the answer? No, I mean after I got out of the hospital, it was like that past. I just left it there. I didn't want to remember anything. I didn't I didn't want to know anything. So I I guess I was just going with it, and, and that was the first time I found out that all those kids oh, wow. that they died. Comments or questions? Uh, and it's why I say I love the pacing, like it's so calm and the way you let some of the Spanish breathe before you translate it, it's just really good pacing. I'm wondering how much, when you started making it, did you know that all this stuff about your family was going to come up or was it originally just about? Well, to be honest, this wasn't, this was plan B actually, this wasn't even my first story. I was gonna um, talk about my dad and his history in Colombia and things like that. And uh, it was a bit hard because then I would have to travel to Colombia and then Kari was scared I was gonna get kidnapped out there. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I didn't really know much about what I went through back then. So it was almost as, as I was doing the story, I was investigating about my life. Like I had no idea. My middle brother almost got left back. I had no clue that he even cared if he was a donor or, or if he wasn't. And like the whole situation with my parents, that was, that was a complete surprise. Like, I mean, I kind of knew that they were arguing, but I thought it was just something minor. That I didn't think that it almost came to the point that they were gonna completely split up from each other. Uh, is this your first piece? Yeah. Because I think it was fantastic. Yeah. And it's the best I heard here, actually. <laughs> and I think the way you, you it, everything is nice. The way you introduce your family and you start with your little brother and uh, and uh, also you gave this piece a kind of humor and this uh, was uh, very nice because uh, life is going on and things are happening and 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 you notice that in your way into the story and I think it's a beautiful piece. I mean, and you should make some more. One more. I thought this was incredible, and I'm amazed to hear that you didn't know some of these things, like the dynamic with your middle brother and your parents. And I'm just so impressed. I wonder if you could just say something about how you were able to sustain these moments of clearly uncomfortable. Like, there was that moment with your mom where she was like, this is really rough for me. And reflecting on a family crisis like that often will make even the bravest reporter back away. And you stayed with it. I mean, yeah, especially when I was doing that interview with my mom. Like I, I, that part, I always remember her, her face. She's going like this. She's like, 
something like that. So, so I, I, I just left the microphone there, and then she noticed that I wasn't going to put the microphone down, and she just opened up. And, and same thing with my dad. Like, my dad, when I asked him the question, he was just like, oh, man, I can't believe you're going to ask me that. Like, before then, there was a bit of a, of a cut, because he was asking me, do you really want to know this and all this? Wow. So, I mean, I just went with it, and I just left the microphone on it. Well, that's love. That's parental love, right? <laughs> yeah. That's great. Thank you very much. We're going we're gonna to move on, but you'll be around after. Yeah, definitely. All right. We have about 15 minutes left, and there are two more short pieces um, to listen to. One is uh, by Verlyn Williams, who's also a radio rookie, um, and the other is by Macklin Blair, who's uh, coming from Apple Shop. Um, they're both about immigration, and uh, they're, they're quite different. So uh, if you don't mind, maybe if you guys, I'm just going to start playing just for time. If you guys can switch on up so you can at least see Verlyn and Macklin's faces. And we're going to start listening to just excerpts from Verlin's piece, Legal Status. My dad reminds me of some of the politicians I see on TV, like in the last presidential debates. I mean, they say a whole lot, but most of the time, they aren't telling me what I want to know. Just so I clear it up, what's my legal status right now? My dad is most annoying like, is, when the subject is serious, like with Thomas. my immigration status. Your legal status right now, um, when I got my green card under the suspension of deportation, you, you and your mom were entitled to get your green card also at that point. So something happened which I don't really know and they told me that I had to apply for you guys. I, you, you should be okay because under, under the re relief program, you're entitled to stay in the United States. It's just a matter of time before you get your, your everything is in the works, it's just that it takes forever. Confused? Well, imagine how I feel. My parents moved here when I was just a few months old. I always knew I was born in Sierra Leone, West Africa, and that I wasn't a U.S. citizen, but I didn't know what that meant. Oh, yeah, I know this song. I consider myself Sierra Leonean because I grew up hearing Creole, listening to all kinds of African music, and eating cassava leaves to rice. But America is my home because I know nowhere else. Here is where I learned to speak my mind, and I know I don't want to have to answer to anybody, so I need to be making my own money. When I was 14, I wanted to get a job, but my parents didn't want me to work because they said I was too young. Two years ago, when I was 17, I did get a job tutoring kids. I worked a whole week and didn't get paid because I didn't have a social security number. Then it came time to fill out my financial aid form for college, and I had to check being a citizen or a permanent resident. So I asked my parents if I had an alien registration number, because if you're a permanent resident, you have one. I found out that I wasn't even a permanent resident, and that meant I couldn't get any financial aid. Since my parents could only afford a local college, what I wanted to do, I couldn't do anymore, like go to Spelman or Howard University and live in the dorms. I resented my parents for putting me in this situation and for keeping the truth from me. I wanted to know why I wasn't allowed to work, why I didn't have a social security number, and what they were doing to fix things. I must confess that I've been really laid back and that I should have done more, you know, to try to get your status changed. But it's better late than never. Though I've lived in America all my life, technically it feels like I don't exist. 
I never thought I'd have fewer rights than my younger sister and brother who were born here. My brother Victor is 12 now. I am different, because I'm not, I'm not a citizen like you and Lavasar. So I'll just get the green card. <laughs> and do you think it's easy to get a green card? I'm not sure. How do you get a green card? You have to apply for it, and sometimes it takes years to get it. My family doesn't understand why I feel so frustrated and helpless. When I started asking my Uncle Nathan questions, he made it clear he didn't want me talking about this issue on the radio. You do not want to go like this hear me. You do not want to do that, Vega. Everybody keeps saying, do something, do something, do something, and I'm trying to do something, and everybody... I never said do something. So we're going to sit in La La Land for the rest of my life? I said, what I told you to do is go to your dad. I've been going to him for freaking four years. Okay, Vigalin, Vigalin, that's your, but, 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 okay, so you put the blame on your dad. I didn't make the choice to come here, and basically what you're saying for me to sit here and wait for him to do something? Vigalin, Vigalin, believe it or not, when your dad came over here, that's the best thing he could have done for you. Okay, do not, you don't understand. You do not understand. When somebody gets their green card, they're supposed to put their dependents under it. I was supposed to bring get a green card. Tell me why that's not, why I don't but have a You should be mad at your dad for not doing that from the so what am I, So I'm supposed to sit here and be mad? Okay, there's one thing you could do. You could sit here and be mad, right? The other thing is, could, is, is you could get yourself deported, right? Which is what I firmly believe you're on the route of doing. Do you understand that September 11 has changed, changed the rules of the game? Uncle Nathan thought talking about this was dangerous for me. before you sit here and start jumping in my face. Okay, do not talk to your Uncle Nathan that way. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get up in your face or whatever. I'm just telling you my opinions, okay? And I'm telling you because I have your best interests at heart. Everyone goes on about my best interests. My uncle is a green card holder and has a job he likes, so how can he possibly know what I'm feeling? My mother doesn't have a green card yet, but she also doesn't understand. Maybe that's because she's had papers that allowed her to work as a teacher. And that's what she always wanted to do. Do you think that I'm not grateful for the things that you and dad do for me? I think you're very ungrateful because you're not aware of what some other people go through. And we, I think we make sacrifices for you. And in a way, I think if you did have your, your um, green card, you would have showed ungratefulness even more. Because maybe you would have left or you would have done certain things maybe that you shouldn't have done. So not having it, I think, is helping you in a way that maybe you don't even realize because it's, it's giving you that strength to try to do well. I am grateful that I'm here in America, getting more opportunities than I would have gotten this early on. But it's not enough to just be grateful, to sit back and wait. It's been hammering into my head that as long as I be the best that I can be, I can achieve this American dream. But now my mom wants me to settle for less. We're gonna stop there. That's just a... And we'll take a, a couple of questions or comments, and then we're going to leave you with, with Macklin Blair's piece. Questions, comments? Hi. Um, wait, are you a part of Radio Rookies? Yes, too? I am. <laughs> yeah, um, because, I don't know, I'm just so impressed with the, the production you guys have. I was wondering how involved you are in the production. Like, do you work on Mixia, or do you hand it off, or do you talk to people? Who, like, how does that go down? We make all the choices for like the tape and everything, but once it comes to the mixing, we kind of like hand it over to the professionals. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But um. So so you yeah. can like say like how intimate you want to get with the issue. And yeah, and also it's back and forth. You know, like like if I hear something and I'm like, well, what about that part? You know, I don't hear that. You know, like a little part. And then you go back and then they redo it or whatever. So yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I love the argument between you and your uncle. It's like. 
I would be so afraid to like put that argument in there. Cause it's like first you know he doesn't want you to do it and then to put the argument where he's telling you not to do it. And then it's like, cause like your little brother going on like, oh, just get a green card, yeah, cool. But you realize how serious you are about the whole green card issue when you put that argument in there. Yeah. Yeah, is your uncle Nathan pissed off at you? Um, yeah, he was until we won the Peabody for it. Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and good, yeah, and good news, I like, Actually, last Wednesday, I got approved for my green card. So. Yeah. I know there's a couple more questions. Go ahead. Well, I've heard this story before. I think, feel like you tell this story in a way that is the way many, many people experience it, but it just hasn't been told that way in the news, and it, it was incredibly powerful and, and kind of important for people to hear. And I wonder if you heard from Policymakers, if you heard from lawyers, if you heard, like who you heard from after this piece aired? Uh, after the piece aired, I definitely heard from like listeners that say they went through the same thing or people that are saying that they understand my uncle's side. It was really like, I think that's one of the main things I wanted to do with the story is to get this immigration thing that everybody's talking about in this abstract way and really show like how it's affecting people that you're going to school with, that you're working with, and that they're not saying anything because they don't want to put the attention on themselves, you know what I mean? So yeah, I, I did get a lot of um, callers. And actually, my congressman is the one that helped me. <laughs> like, after everything said and done, Kyrie helped me get in touch with this congressman in the Bronx. And he's the one that really like showed me like the right avenues to take to finally get it. Because still kind of like a run around, even after I did the story, oh, you God. know? So yeah. Uh, all right, thank you so much. And let's hear one more story. It's 90 seconds. It's going gonna, it's gonna to knock your socks off. A lot of people, when they think about immigrants, they think about them coming in. They don't think about what it's like for them to leave their homes in the first place. I do, because one day, I might have to leave my home in the mountains. I live in Jeremiah, Kentucky. For generations, people in my family have moved from state to state for jobs and put their lives at risk in the coal mines. Here, leaving the mountains is a rite of passage, just like crossing the border might be for others. I hear kids every day making plans about their future and Eastern Kentucky isn't a part of that. I never thought I had anything in common with teenagers from other countries, like Mexico. But I do. Seeing the immigration debates and demonstrations on TV, I understand that big companies look at our families as dollar signs, as people who can pack coal out or bring the tomato harvest in. Many people think economic migrants in our country had a choice. I can tell you there's no real choice in the decision to leave home. I look around my community and see how many people are out of a job, trying to get by working at Walmart, or getting hurt in the mines. So far, I can count 23 people in my family who have left the community for financial reasons. I don't want to become number 24, someone my family only sees on the holidays. Making a choice to leave means going where people don't wave as you drive by, where no one knows me or my family, where people look down on my way of talking, a place where my customs and traditions are seen as backwards. Knowing where I'm from is one of the most important things to me. I don't want to give that up for a paycheck. And I'm afraid if I go, I'll never be able to come back. It's Macklin Blair. Anyone want to say anything? There's kind of nothing to say. 
good. There, all right, there it is. Yeah, go ahead, please. Well, just to make a quick plug, um, these stories are so powerful. I've heard, I've heard these stories a lot through PRX, and every time I get really choked up and moved by them. This is just incredible work, and thank you so much for sharing it. And if you want to hear it again, most of this work and a couple hundred other new pieces are on PRX. Um, Generation PRX is a project to support, promote, and distribute youth-produced radio. Um, if you want to learn more, feel free to talk to me if you're interested in being on the Youth Editorial Board, which is a paid position. Rocky can tell you all about it. Um, also, come and see me with an application. But um, this is so inspiring, and it's just an honor to be with all of you. So thank you so much. All right, everybody, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, youth producers. Appalachia, Chinatown, Spy Hop, Out Loud, KRCB, everywhere.